Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal legal system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. In our most recent episode, we heard from one half of the progressive criminal justice reform ticket in the 2022 countywide elections here in Shelby County. That was DA Steve Mulroy. For this episode, we talked with newly elected juvenile court judge Tarek Sugarman. Judge Sugarman was a city court judge for years before taking over at juvenile court, and before that he was a public defender and he had a successful private practice. He comes from a family with a very distinguished history of standing up for civil rights, and he's carrying on that tradition. We talked to him about all of that, we checked in on his favorite hobby, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks, Judge Sugarman, for joining us uh, here in courtroom number one at uh, the juvenile court. Uh, we appreciate you taking some time. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, I obviously want to talk about some some of the reform issues that you ran on and some of the goings on in Shelby County. But I, I feel like, um, at least personally, I didn't I don't know much about you and I didn't get to know much about your your history and your personal life, if you will, during the um, during the campaign. So. Uh, and I'm not a native Memphian, but I've heard a lot about the legacy of civil rights in your family. So, so tell me a little bit about uh, where you came from and um, why the law. Right. Well, I was born here in Memphis, actually, Lemoyne Gardens. And at that time, it actually was a garden community. <clears throat> my parents uh, grew up, uh, my father grew up right there at the corner of Walker and McDowell, uh, across from Lemoyne, in Caddy Corner from Metropolitan, across the street from Lemoyne on College. After then, we moved to Castellia Heights, and I attended Peabody Elementary. I was one of the first three kids to desegregate Peabody Elementary. Wow. We My kids se- both went to Peabody. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sure it was much nicer than the, the <laughs> greeting that I got in, uh, I think it was 1960, uh, when I started there. Uh, we were greeted at the school by some hostile parents that didn't want us coming uh, to the school with their children. But it was an excellent um, opportunity for me as a child to, uh, first of all, understand the the times that I was growing up in, and then to learn how relationships uh, with children uh, are affected by their parents. But if kids are left to their own devices, they learn to play together and work together. And so it was, it was an enriching environment in that regard. Uh, from there, I went to Bellevue Junior High. My mother took a job teaching at Howard University after I finished the eighth grade and we moved to Washington. So I finished junior high, high school in Washington, D.C. Completely different environment. Um, there, there were the onset of gang activity, there was the onset of gang activity in the community. Uh, wasn't to the scale that we you know, read about today with the current gangs of this time. It was um, mainly were social uh, units, uh, some dealt in, in drugs, some engaged in some uh, crimes, theft uh, property. But it was a, um, it, Washington was an interesting environment. Of course, the, I later learned about the powers of the seat of government. I was there during the Nixon administration. Right, so we're in the 70s at this point. We're in the 70s yeah, at yeah. this point. And so from there, I attended Howard University, and I was inspired by Dr. King. I was there April the 3rd, 1968, in Mason Temple when he gave his last speech. And, and I was inspired along with my schoolmates, uh, Skipper Whalum and Vasco Smith, Maxine Smith and Vasco Smith's son. Both of them from Memphis as well? Both of them from Memphis, yeah. right. And uh, we decided to go to Morehouse. But the next day, uh, our, our dreams were dashed at the assassination of Dr. King. So we participated in the marches. My parents were involved. My father was a civil rights attorney along with A.W. Willis, and uh, who was my pastor, our family's pastor at the time, Benjamin Hooks. 
and uh, they were inspirations to me. Uh, you know, of course, being involved in the civil rights movement, right on the on the forefront. I wasn't really aware of my father's deep involvement as an attorney. As a child, I just you know I know he left, did work, and then he'd take us on events in the community, but. The impact of it, uh, as I grew older, I really began to appreciate it. Yeah, of course, you were surrounded by some of the giants in this community. Oh, oh yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so it sounds like your, your father was a lawyer, your mother was a professor. They had college degrees. Right. You come from a long line of, of people with college degrees. How many generations uh, oh, on my, do you make now? My father's side, we only go back a couple of generations. Okay. Uh, my grandfather came out of Gunnison, Mississippi. Now, my father uh, attended Morehouse College. He made the dean's list. He attended, he started at 15. He made the dean's list uh, his first year, and he went out and celebrated with some friends. They got intoxicated. They rang the bell tower, and one of them passed out in the president of the university's yard. Oh, no. So um, he came out quickly, kicked my father and his group of friends out. Father came back on the next train to Memphis, intercepted the letter, and told his father he wanted to transfer to Rutgers. He went to Rutgers and then came back That's to Tennessee, slick. <laughs> applied to the University of Tennessee Law School. At that time, because of Jim Crow laws, they wouldn't allow him to come. But they said, well, since you're an African-American, we have an obligation to send you to an education. They had a pact. Um, anyway, he uh, had got to choose where he wanted. He said, well, I want to go to Harvard. Then said so Tennessee had to pay a full ride to Harvard for him, including trips back and all forth. All because from, he from, got kicked out. All because, all because, well, he got kicked out, which resulted in transferring to, to Rutgers, but when he applied to law school in, at the University of Tennessee, because of Jim Crow laws, oh, they had to make him go to, they had let him go to uh, the school of his church, which, which was Harvard. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, and so you went to law school at How Howard, is that correct? I went to Howard University, yeah. that's correct. And uh, became a public defender pretty soon thereafter. And I want, I want you to talk maybe a little bit about how that experience, I, I, as a public defender myself, we, right. share, we share that, but I wanna hear how maybe that influenced your, influences your career as a judge. The Public Defender's Office, as you know, um, we are appointed to indigent uh, defendants, persons who are accused of, of criminal activity. And uh, I started out in General Sessions Court with Horace Barati. Within about six months, I think I went up to the criminal court section and practiced in many of the criminal court divisions. But I was a part-time attorney. <clears throat> After I started, uh, then the public defender was A.C. Warden. He and his wife, Ruby Warden, hired me in their private practice, so I joined the firm of Warden and Warden. And this was, I passed the bar in 83. This is probably late 84. And so... In, and at the time, he was a part-time. He was a part-time. He was part-time The as chief well. public defender was also part-time right. back then. Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. Had, had a full-time practice. We did civil litigation. Uh, of course, 70% of my practice was in, was in the criminal area, uh, in the federal court, as well as some of the other state courts um, in, in other counties right. and all of the general sessions. Right, with the Wharton Law Firm. That's correct. Did you have a, a big case uh, in that time that when you were in private practice oh, that, you, uh, that we might know about? Yes. Well, one was the, um, the U.S. US uh, universe, excuse me, the lawsuit against the city of Memphis filed in the federal court, and I represented the, the minority members of the city council as defendants. Of course, they served all the defendants, and the minority members did not want to file a, a answer in, uh, in opposition to the and, suit. And what was the basis of the suit? The basis of the suit was the uh, Voting Rights Act, okay. yeah, and, and to get rid of the runoff provisions in the Voting Rights Act, and to redraw the city council Which uh, the districts. minority members wanted to happen. They wanted to happen. So we, we entered an answer admitting to the, to the uh, allegations in the complaint, 
and um, it ended up going uh, into settlement. Uh, judge Kenneth Turner was the judge at the time. So we redrew the city council. That's where we uh, developed a plan where you had seven districts and two at-large with three council positions in each of the two at-large districts. Right. 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 And so that was your case. That, that was, was my case. That was yeah. a big case. Yeah. Um, well, and so you were elected in August of this year, of 2022, to be uh, the juvenile court judge for the next eight years. And so you've been on the job for not too long, but I wonder if you could share maybe a, a guiding principle or two uh, as you enter this job, which is a big job, and, and maybe you can talk a little about how big it is, but what are the what are the principles that guide you when you take over such a big and important job? Uh, of course, as a judge, any judge, to abide by the rules of ethics. Uh, one of the concerns with the Department of Justice with our, with our then juvenile court system was the denial of due process at most of the contacts they had at, with the juvenile court system uh, with, with minority kids. Um, in that regard, I am very, very cognizant of making sure that every child is properly represented uh, and that the defendant's defense attorneys are probably resu- properly resourced. Um, now, I started um, this job on the 1st of September, been in, in office now 45 days. I've met with all areas of law enforcement, community leaders, and I had a conversation with Phyllis Aluko, who started the public defender's office while I was still there, who is now the chief public defender. Um, there is a shortage of attorneys. A lot of the attorneys were hired now by the district attorney's office out of her office. So we're having a shortage of public defenders to to um, to uh, service the, the youth that come through this court system. Right. Yes, I'm 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 aware of that. I, I don't know if uh, many of the listeners are, but it is right. it is happening, and right. it uh, it is both a good uh, thing and a bad thing uh, because <laughs> we need good folks on both sides exactly uh, and and you're saying that we don't we don't have that currently well talk so you you, you touched on the doj um oversight that ended uh, several years ago now but you, you specifically talked about due process and the need for representation so what do we do about that as a community i mean it's not completely your responsibility but what are your thoughts and and what do you hope to see happen um across the county to to remedy this lack of attorneys and this due process challenge that still exists one of the things i'm doing i've reached out to the university of memphis law school and asked the dean to bring the clinic back in where uh third second third year students can actually represent uh, indigent clients here in the juvenile court system uh that's something we want to work on with our 2024 2023-24 2023-24 budget to try to make sure we get that done, uh, have an investigator available as well as counselors available through the juvenile court system to help in that process. Uh, they could also represent um, families on dependency and neglect petitions. So these are the kind of things we're looking at doing. The other is um, to get some retired judges and or attorneys to handle some of the overload that we have on some of our dockets. Uh, custody cases, we are months behind on handling those, those matters. And if, I don't want to get too far deep into the weeds, but if a magistrate starts a trial and they're unable unable to conclude it within a day or so, then it gets kicked down the road and you have to pick it up back up three or four months down the road. So uh, I want to have the magistrates here in emotions and then have a uh, retired judge or an attorney who's retired handle the trial so that there's not a delay. They continue the trial until it's finished. So we can get our docket numbers down. Sure, sure. Well, you... 
you've mentioned custody hearings. Obviously, I think most folks who listen to this podcast and are, who are familiar with Just City know about juvenile court as the place where children are brought if they're accused of delinquent acts. What all does the juvenile court do, though? Can you just give us a quick uh, overview of everything you do? Because most folks don't realize the scope of right. what, what goes on. And what we call the civil side, you have custody, child support, dependency, and neglect petitions. Uh, we also hear some truancy cases referred by the school uh, system. When we came in, we were we still have a backlog of truancy cases all the way into last year. So we've asked the school system to review their their files. Some of these cases have resolved themselves. Some of the children have actually been re-enrolled in school. So we're trying to get those numbers down so that we can uh, handle real-time cases yeah. from this you're year. You're doing it by going to the source, right? The school system is yeah. referring these. And so they refer in, these. Instead of trying to deal with yeah. this, uh, yeah. this It's backlog. the school system's responsibility yeah. to handle truancy. Uh, we just uh, uh, try to address some of the more egregious cases, mm-hmm. the chronic cases, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a very, very small percentage. Uh, of course, we don't want to get into locking children up, criminalizing right. uh, um, truancy, uh, nor the parents, for that matter. Uh, but we, we like to uh, resolve the cases, though, and, and try to get these kids back in school. And the court is some in some, how, some way responsible for, for child support issues in the community, right? And That's custody correct. disputes among parents. We set child support. Uh, we handle custody matters. Uh, on the delinquency side, of course, um, there are programs available for kids that, for youth that uh, commit acts, and certainly violent acts have now come to the forefront. But that's a very, very small percentage, and people think it's a big, big problem. The violent acts are a big problem, but the percentage of the children that are committing those acts is, is relatively small. Yeah, can you give us a sense of that? I mean, I, how small? Like, uh, total delinquency cases in the last year that we had reported, saw statistics on, excuse me, was 2020 and 2021. It was below 3,000 total delinquent acts. But of the violent crimes, that was a smaller percentage than that, probably about 15% of that, of that two to 3,000. So I know that the community is frustrated. Anyone who's paid attention to that, those violent acts, and, and especially you know the ones uh, that are where children are accused of committing them, uh, we're frustrated by the lack of results. We're frustrated by some would say the lack of options that we have. Um, I assume you share those frustrations, but you, I do. you are paid to think more deeply about them than the rest of us. So, what do you think, and how do we how do we resolve some of that frustration? What do we need? What are we lacking? Uh, when it comes to dealing with that small percentage that makes the news and that we're all talking about and worried about? The resources available to handle these types of severe cases are very, very limited. For instance, there's been a a large spike in mental health issues in our community. Uh, Children the ages of 9 to 17 are the largest growing demographic of children committing suicide. Um, At the same time, there are not facilities to accommodate. I had a a case uh, not long ago, a young man, this was before I came in office, uh, was picked up on a relatively serious matter. I'm not going to say exactly what the, what the violation was, but was determined to need mental health treatment uh, in residence. Uh, they sent him to a facility. They said they couldn't service the child's needs because there was, there was not any insurance to pay for the, the care. And so this kid bumped around to two other placements, optional placements, and was not accepted for the same reason. Well, the kid reoffended this time on a carjacking. So in that instance, we failed that child. The child didn't fail us. Uh, the child needed mental health treatment, and uh, just the resources for inpatient treatment, it, 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 we, need, we need more resources in this community. Do you find that that is a missing perspective in criminal justice at large? Uh, what you just said, I, th- I think, was striking. Um, 
that we failed that child. The child didn't fail us. Do you find that to be generally a, a, an uncommon perspective? Yeah, uh, the general community does not appreciate how dire those 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 that lack of resources can be. Um, we don't have a placement for, for instance, a secured facility in West Tennessee. We have to go to Wilder or children referred out of state on, on more serious offenses. Um, and that makes it complicated for the family to ma- maintain some connection with that, with yeah, that youth as they go through the system. Uh, we try to provide the resources these children need, counseling, um, rehabilitative services like mentoring, uh, getting involved in programs like GIF and Youth, youth Villages, as you know, has switched. Uh, they now are developing a, which is in their alpha stage, a switch for youth. Uh, this, the original switch dealt with adults 18 and over. Right, which is a group violence intervention program. It is. Uh, designed to identify and, and intervene in, in the lives of youth that who may escalate their behavior into something dangerous and violent, right? That's, that's correct. That's um, correct. But some of the other stuff you mentioned, particularly you mentioned Wilder, which is a which is a Department of Children's Services facility run by the state of Tennessee. That's correct. Uh, and then you mentioned out of state, which is a, a troubling thought, as you mentioned, because it puts children in a different place from their exactly. families. What are the resources the state makes available? When does it become the state's responsibility? At the point in time where uh, DCS is assigned to take uh, responsibility for that child, take that child under their their protective custody. So a judge and the resources. or a right. magistrate here makes a decision makes to a decision. place the child in the custody of the state, and the state is then required um, right. to to meet the needs of the child the in, in of a the secure child. setting. Sometimes that's correct. And um, do they have what what is what is being done to meet that need? Because it sounds to me like if we're sending children out of state, we've got a deficit there. We we're not providing the, the, the facilities that we need to, and, and that's a state function, correct? That is a state function, and uh, we desperately need a facility here in, in West Tennessee uh, that serves the children in this region. And, uh, it, it, you know, to drive to Wilder takes two, two and a half hours for a family if they wanted, wanted to drive to, to visit with a child. Uh, the other places have been in places like Arkansas and Texas, and, of course, that is a tremendous hardship. We used to provide transportation, but, of course, with the growing cost of expenditures, gasoline and, and expensive travel uh, right. that's often difficult how many kids do. are in texas I, i've not heard this um i'm not sure how many are actually play, have, have been placed there from here it, it is a last resort uh, and is that, does the option. state make that decision as well the state would make that decision if dcs cannot find a placement here they'll try to find a placement elsewhere and and the same thing with mental health treatment you know it's it sometimes there are problematic cases that uh, some institutions may not take. Uh, for instance, a, a, a child that's, that's got an arson uh, case pending or, or that where, they, where they need servicing. Uh, it's often difficult to find a placement for those children. So this may seem like a basic question, but I mean, I'm going to take a step back a little bit. And um, I mean, I, I live and breathe this stuff too, and so the answer is pretty obvious to me. But I want for, for folks who are listening who may not have thought much about the difference between what you do as a juvenile court judge and what the staff around you do versus what a criminal court judge in the adult system does and maybe a probation officer there. Why is it different in, for children and, and for people under the age of 18? Why do we do this so differently? Because youth need to be treated differently than an adult offender. Uh, an adult, when they're, when they're charged, they're charged with a criminal act. A youth is charged with a delinquent act. It may mirror the same charges as what you find on the adult criminal books, but uh, children's minds, as we know now, develop differently. Uh, they're not as responsible for the judgments and decisions they make simply because their, their mind, their maturity has not uh, gotten to that level. Their mind has not fully developed to make a rational, uh, informed decision. And uh, my 
parents used to ask me if I had done something wrong, what were you thinking? Well, that's just the point. <laughs> they weren't thinking. They Good often example, aren't thinking. Yeah. They haven't got the development and the experience to process their actions. They don't think about what they're doing or the consequences of them. And so that's why the juvenile system is here, to, uh, to uh, understand there is a difference between how youth, youth should be treated and adult offenders should be treated. Well, um, you've talked about some specifics uh, with, with regard to, to youth justice that, you know, some gaps we need to fill. Um, what other reforms do you hope to be a part of in the next seven years and <laughs> 320 days? Well, one is the servicing we give to families. You can't take a child and, and, and punish the child and put them back in the same environment expect to get a different outcome. So we're trying to develop uh, educational programs when we have the new detention center, which is supposed to open in April of 2023. Uh, probably moving ready in 20, in, excuse me, in June of that year. Uh, I've asked the sheriff to designate an area we, where we can set, a tra set up a training area, a training facility, uh, to teach kids things like coding. There is going to be a computer lab there. We also want to teach kids things like content development, uh, have them assessed so that they, if they choose not to go to college or cannot afford to go to college, at least they have an opportunity to get a decent income, so direct them to trade schools. Uh, and through that, uh, once an assessment is done, if a child has the aptitude and the desire to go into a trade school, partner with Southwest to give children an opportunity to learn. They have a tremendous megatronics program there, uh, auto mechanic programs there, culinary arts programs there, to give these children an avenue to develop a career and move into a, a productive job. Blue Oval has financed a lot of the megatronics uh, program that they have there at Southwest with it in uh, intention of having youth raised to learn how to handle jobs at, at Blue Oval and other technologies. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that facility. It wasn't on my list of things to talk about, but you've obviously been there since you've become judge, or, or maybe right before. You, you, you've seen it since at, at you Southwest decided. Southwest or at, at uh, Blue Oval. The, the, no, the youth detention facility that we're working yes. on. Yes, we have been there. Been there. Yes. So describe to us uh, what this facility would be like, how it different differs from now, and also should note that this facility is not your responsibility. It's no. not the court's responsibility. It's run by the sheriff. So uh, this is a big deal um, that um, the community decided to um, activate this building that had been dormant for a while. Uh, one reason was, is because it has more capacity. It has more beds. It has the, the ability to house more children. Uh, so how are we going to make sure that we don't fill those beds just because we have well, them? You've mentioned some of the thing, re ways that we're going to do that. What else, how do you respond to uh, that question and that concern that the community might have? Well, we, we don't need to put more children. You campaigned on, in fact, fewer children. So what, how are we going to balance that out? by not referring that many children to, <laughs> to detention, by, by uh, trying to direct children to other uh, avenues, um, deter contact with juvenile court to begin with. And that starts at a very early age. We want to be intentional about uh, contacting youth early on and their families to try to um, cut off any problems coming up down the road that we see. A lot of times on our dependency and neglect docket, uh, we see families where they're under-resourced and underserviced in the community. Uh, we want to try to direct those families through the dependency and neglect docket to resources that may be available to them to help them with their situations, parenting classes, uh, continuing education classes. And if we handle the situations with the families that are under-resourced, that have had a lack of opportunity in the community for job development, that is the main way to keep some of these children from coming off of that docket of dependency and elect and onto our, onto our, uh, onto our delinquency dockets. Got it. Um, and so 
this is a lot of work, and you have a lot of help. Uh, so I want you maybe to in, to say a little bit about the team of magistrate judges. So you have a, a, a group of, of lawyers who are, you appoint to make some of these decisions that you've been talking about. You don't make them all yourself. No. So say no, a little no. bit about that team of, of folks that you've assembled and, and what may make them different from past magistrates and why you chose folks that you did, maybe not by name, but uh, what were your what were your goals in assembling the team of magistrate judges that will help you do all this? Actually, a number of the magistrates that were already here on staff, uh, we've, we've retained. Uh, those that have left have, have usually have gone by retirement, uh, basically. Uh, but then I brought in Chief Magistrate Strong, African-American female young lady who has practiced here. Her husband's also an attorney. Uh, she's practiced, has, a, has had a, a, um, a youth practice here, Davidson County, uh, Chattanooga, and Knoxville. And she, in, in Davidson County, she worked with Judge Calloway, Sheila Calloway, who's done a tremendous job with the Davidson County uh, Metro uh, Juvenile Court. And um, she brought a wealth of experience, Judge Strong did, to this court. Um, and then also Taylor Eskridge, who has joined us as a magistrate. She was a General Sessions magistrate before then. She was with the U.S. Attorney's Office handling criminal matters in Jackson and before then in private practice. Uh, so a, a lot of the attorneys we brought in, then Ray Glasgow, who has been a practitioner here in Shelby County, handling juvenile matters for, I don't know, 20, 30 years now, yeah. Um, and then there are a few others we're going to try to bring on next year uh, once we get our 2023-2024 budget. Sure. And we are limited in space here, uh, but in 2024, after the new detention center opens, the detention center that's currently here, they're going to do some demolition and expand the offices and hope to have one or two more uh, judicial courts here. Oh, very nice. Okay. Um, well, I, I want to. I got a couple of, of not so serious questions that I want to get to. But before we go to that, there's a question that I, I ask of a lot of folks, um, and and it's what role do you think mercy should play in the criminal legal system, whether that be youth or adult? How does mercy fit in? You have to have uh, mercy and empathy um, when you are dealing with somebody who one does, lacks the developmental understanding or the mental aptitude. Uh, to appreciate the wrongfulness, wrongfulness of the action and give them an opportunity to correct that behavior, but you have to do it intentionally uh, with resources, again, counseling, mental health therapy, developmental, uh, addressing developmental problems. And then, uh, having done that, uh, if that child happens, or youth or adult happens to continue to engage in that behavior uh, to the extent it may become chronic, you have to really then weigh the ba balance between what's in the child or the adult's best interest and the community's safety best interest. So it, it's a delicate balance, especially when violent crimes have been on such a rise as they have been. Uh, the community often is, is leaning more towards the punitive aspect. We really have to take the opportunity, especially under the mandate that the Department of Justice gave us, to exhaust all opportunities at the juvenile system, and now I'm just talking about the children, in our juvenile system to address the needs of, those, of that child. I think you'd agree that mercy might be a little more important when it comes to kids, huh? It is, yeah, much yeah. more important. Well, so you are an avid hunter, um, which I think I recall learning about you at, during the campaign. It's November, so it's deer season. It's deer season. Have you been out? And tell, what, what's, what's up out I've there in the woods? I've been out twice, uh, bow hunt, and um, didn't see anything. Nothing? Uh, Both but, times but this year? often that's not the primary aim. It's just to get away and relax. I uh, love sitting in the woods and... Uh, and it's at peace. It's it's no closer to nature than than than, than sitting in the woods on a on a um, 
dark morning, watching the sunrise and seeing the dew on the ground. Um, it's just, it's just, it, uh, it's an ethereal. It, it's, it's, it's an experience that it, it beyond. It's beyond description. I, I, I enjoy it. Uh, often, people question, well, you know, what do you accomplish sitting in the woods? It's getting <laughs> getting back to nature and having a peace of mind. So, are you full blown deer stand all by yourself, kind of up in a tree? Yeah, I like climbing. Uh, <laughs> This is kind of tech. I like uh, saddle hunting. I, I took that up about three years ago. It's a device that you use to climb a tree, so you're actually tethered in the tree with a rope. Uh, the many ways of, of climbing it, I use uh, steps that I use attached to the tree and climb up. Uh, but then I, hanging stands, or I'll use a stationary stand if I'm hunting on somebody else's property. Wow, wow. So you haven't gotten anything this year. What's the largest buck you've ever you've ever shot? Uh, 14 pointer. Whoa. Yeah, it was on President's, not President's, I'm sorry, yeah, President's Island. It was actually the Inslee Bottom area. And uh, I was hunting there How long ago with a friend. That? This was in 2004. Oh, wow. Yeah. You remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, was, very much so. That's yeah. a big animal. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, thank you so much for spending a few minutes. I, I feel like we, we just scratched the surface, but uh, uh, it's been a pleasure to hear some of your vision and some of the challenges that you're facing and, and sharing a little bit, bit about your history and your personal life. Um, we really appreciate you joining us. We'll get you back one of these days. I appreciate your interest. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking to make some serious changes in this court system for the better, to service our families and the children. Excellent. Yeah. Well, yeah. we wish you all the best. Thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Juvenile Court Judge Tark Sugarman on the permanent record. Special thanks to Dylan Sandifer for helping produce this episode and to Ryan Azada for making sure it gets recorded, edited, and published. Jeff Hewlett wrote and performed She Got Gone, the original theme music for the permanent record. Jeff is back playing live music as often as he can. Look for him this fall and go support live music. You can find his music on Spotify. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work and find previous episodes of this podcast on our brand new website, justcity.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at justcity901. Make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record somewhere, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Give us a rating and a review. Just click as many of those little stars as you're willing. It really helps us out. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.